Hello, this is John Renaud, and you're listening to the Mobile Radio Carnival via the CEF.world. Check us out, Uncommon Genius for the Common Types. Yeah, I took it off because it was echoing and, and uh, all of that. Nonsense. Yeah, that was just that was trying to mute the iPad, and you uh, you beat me to it. I did, baby. We're ready to go, though, man. If you want to just start up, I I'm ready. I'm loaded and just uh, dying to talk to you about rock and roll. Sure. So, so you are Ray Goodman. You have uh, played guitar for a good many years. And um, when did it start? Who bought you your first guitar? 1961, I believe. Pre Beatles. Kind of like the lozenge in my mouth. Pre Beatles, uh, you know, uh, the end of the Rocky, Rockabilly era, the, you know, the, the early rock and roll days. So, yeah, 61. 61. And did you, you mentioned the uh, Rockabilly era? Did, was that something you started with, or we, did you just jump into like 60s rock? No, it was, it was, you know, it was the popular music at the time Rockabilly, surf music, all that stuff, you know, Adventures, uh, Dwayne Eddy. Um, well, I think you come from a really interesting generation of musicians because you tended, you guys tended to just like blur everything into rock and roll. Like you, you have a very strong blues style, which I'm sure you started playing blues early on, but you guys consider that all part of rock and roll. Uh, did you have a, a, an original thing that you started with? What was the first song that you remember learning? Uh, first song I remember learning was uh, Your Cheating Heart by Hank Williams, using you know, what they call cowboy chords, just C and G and D and all those chords you can make right down in the first several frets, like everybody else, you know? Right. Well, that's great. And then so you end up uh, playing guitar for some years. What was your, who, where was your first band? Uh, my first band was working with my cousin Ron. This was in, you know, 62, 63. And then I went on to form a band called the Invictus that I was with for three years. That was kind of my junior high, high school band. Um, and we actually won the Battle of the Bands at the Michigan State Fair in 1965. Nice deal, man. It, it, what what yeah. was the uh, Battle of the Bands like back in that time? I know in today's world, I don't even know if they do stuff like that. But uh, I'm sure it was a big deal because rock and roll was a little considered quite reckless at the time, I assume. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. Um, sort you know, we of got like pretty battles. popular. Oh, go ahead. I'm yeah, sorry. there was a competition. You'd perform and you'd be judged, and then somebody else would perform, and you'd be made it to the final playoffs. You went up against, you know, the, the top three or top five, and uh, we won out. I've still got the trophy. Oh, oh that's Sorry, fantastic. you can't see it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're pointing to it right now, right? <laughs> oh yeah, I'll hold it up to the hold it up to the radio so people can hear folks at home can see it. Sure. Nice man. So that's like somewhere in mid '60s, and then uh, how did it, how does the audience does the audience decide by its volume of approval? Is that how that worked? No, it was judged by some kind of jury at the state fair itself. They have some you know some local. Uh, industrial magnates or whatever were on the board interesting so, yeah, it wasn't and, audience approval it was uh, it was before a panel and i can't really remember too much more than that i don't know how we ended up winning but we did and uh, then we went on to uh, uh perform sock hops all over the metro detroit area and we'd, 
We'd uh, uh, work with the Temptations. Uh, they nice. come and lip sync their latest hit for all the DJs. Uh, Dionne Warwick, the Supremes, uh, a whole number of those uh, early R&B and Motown acts. We did a lot of shows with them where we would we would open the show. They come up and lip sync their hit or two for the for the DJ who was spinning the records, and then they'd yeah. jump in their car and go to another one, and we'd play another set. So. That's interesting. I forgot to mention to the audience that you were uh, born and bred a Detroit uh, rock and roll musician, um, which was oh, yeah. the Motown stuff. Yeah, one of the world's great music schools, Detroit, Michigan. Absolutely, especially at that time. Um, I don't know where it stands now. I know that with, with Julian, my son, as you know, uh, EDM's kind of a big thing in Detroit, but that has uh, evolved well beyond what rock and roll was, or certainly what rock and roll was in the 60s. Um, so you, you ended up playing with a bunch of kind of uh, notable types, and then you somehow ended up with a relationship with a guy, uh, Mitch Ryder. How did that mm -hmm. come about? Well, we already done sock hops with the Billy Lee and Rivieras. <laughs> and they were a great, great band. Uh, that was, you know, they went on to become Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. Well, we already played several shows with them, and they were just, they were fantastic. They were so, so far above and beyond everybody else, including my band. That, right. uh, uh, it was just uh, amazing. But, uh, you know, after they made it big and after um, Mitch decided to go solo or his management decided that he should go solo, I ran into Johnny B. Badanjic, the original drummer. He was having trouble keeping the wheels going without Mitch, so he wanted to start something new, and he tapped me to uh, be the guitar player. Nice. So that was called Blueberry Jam, and I was with them for a year or two, and then I got the nod from SRC, so that was... a. Uh, the beginning, you know, after a year or so with B, we really were getting the traction in the industry despite his connections. Right. And, uh, SRC, of course, was already signed with Capital. They had two previous albums out. You know, it just, just looked like a good move. So now that's I, how I that came about. Yeah, I don't know that the audience would know SRC. So if if I can recollect correctly, they were huge in the Ann Arbor music uh, district back in the late '60s. Is that correct? Yeah, huge in the Midwest. Uh, uh, you know, it was regional success, uh, but uh, they were they were one of the biggest draws at the Grandy Ballroom and the East Town Theater and the summer festival circuits. Uh, uh, it was quite a quite a change going from sock hops and small bars to playing big stages all of a sudden. Yeah, I imagine. And and that yeah. was uh, what the Scott Richardson crew is that what it was? Yeah, the, it, initially it stood for the it stood for the Scott Richard case, and they shortened it to SRC. After a while, it, very interesting albums. Some of some of the you know precursors of what's known today as Prague rock, and uh, they had a lot of fans from uh, <laughs> Peter Gabriel cited them as an influence. A lot of influence was exuded uh, through SRC into the emerging Prague rock. Um, yeah, stylings. they were they, you know before before it was all uh, all given names and genres. It was just you know music. Right. So we didn't call it prog rock, uh, art rock, or whatever you want to call it, but uh, but now it is. Didn't you also, I mean, I'm going to get back to SRC, but didn't you also, isn't The Frost another band that you kind of had an association with? And they were also <coughs> prog rock or considered prog rock, right? In hindsight. Yeah. Yeah, they were they were kind of a you know a vocal pop hit that was, you know, the great, great Dick Wagner, one of my dear friends. And I first met them at the Grandy. I saw them at the Grandy playing. I was there the night they recorded their live album. 
And then uh, less than a year later, we were sharing the bill, and uh, Dick became a, a lifelong friend of mine until he unfortunately passed in 2014. Right. Yeah, so you had, I guess maybe in Michigan at the time, that was the emerging vibe was to take what rock and roll was and advance it more. I, I'm certain that would do with influences from perhaps the Beatles doing Sgt. Peppers and things of that nature, kind of mind expansion stuff. Right, right. You know, it's the whole social climate, the societal changes that were going on at the time. And the, and, and also the music industry was still wide open. You know, the bean counters and uh, lawyers and experts uh, hadn't come in yet right so you could get away with stuff that uh that you know would never happen today you can imagine if dylan tried to start out today yeah it wouldn't work it's just no. you, the whole corporate vibe which came in radio uh when i started in radio in the 80s it was all corporate run but what you're talking about i assume is the uh freeform fm radio disc jocks who could throw on stuff and and it was sometimes even family-owned radio, and they, no one really knew what to do with FM. And so the people that knew how to exploit for rock and roll did, I assume, is what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. It was the underground radio scene and some really, really great DJs that, you know, would, would compose sets of music as if, uh, you know, as if it was telling one continuous story. One song flowed to the other. Yeah. And uh, uh, just like some albums in the day, and you know, that's a lost art today in this age of download singles and uh, and uh, um, you know, MP3s and just yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely changed. <laughs> that's one of the reasons I'm excited to talk about you. I'm I'm a little all over the place with you because I know that I I know you personally, and I know there's a huge range of of experiences that you've had. So uh, forgive me if I'm if I feel like I'm being a bit scattered. Um, Getting back to SRC, it, it, was there a big? I believe they were in Ann Arbor based. Um, yes, yes, we were. We were in Ann Arbor. That's correct. And was that was Ann Arbor a huge, um, like, '60s mecca for for musicians in in Michigan at the time, or was it just spread out throughout the state? It was all over the state, but Ann Arbor was a particular hotbed. I mean, there was so much creativity going on. We had the MC5. We had the White Panther Party with John Sinclair. The MC5. Uh, we had uh, Iggy and the Stooges. We were all contemporaries. Uh, Alice Cooper, of course, <coughs> famously, when he first moved back to Detroit and they had right. no place to stay, they spent their first few nights sleeping on our band floor at, our, at the band house. In, was, that the, was that the one out in Pontiac? No, that that was the farm they got a, a year yeah. or so later. When they first arrived in in, in Michigan, moving from Arizona, uh, they crashed on our floor. I think uh, I don't know how they got a hold of us. I think the, uh, one of the DJs put the word out they needed a place to stay, and we we right. complied. That's interesting. And did you know? I I happen to have known uh, a bit Ron Ashton. Were you at all? Who of course is with the Stooges. Were you at all associated with Ron, or did you have any experience playing with Ron in the Stooges? I, I knew him. I really never played with him. Uh, I was uh, pretty good friends with Jim Osterberg in the late 60s, uh, right. uh, who's better known as Iggy. We used to have nights where we would, uh, everybody had a band house, and we'd, uh, we'd host the other guys on one night, and then the next, uh, on Wednesday, say we go to the MC5's house and hang out with them. On oh, Tuesdays, cool. uh, they, they'd come over and see us and hang out at our place. And Iggy was a regular at the SRC band house. They're a really nice, intelligent guy. Well, how freaking cool does that sound, man? That's a, that sounds like a great time. And you have, 
I mean, again, this is where I'm going to get a little scattered. You have relationships or you've had, you know, points in your career where you're hanging out with the guys from Cactus. Uh, is that correct? I remember you talking a little bit about that at one point because I love Cactus. Yeah, I've worked with Rusty Day a little bit. And uh, when he left to uh, form Cactus with Carmen Apice and uh, Tim Bogart and Jim McCarty, uh, yeah. he was living on Long Island. And I visited New York with... Uh, with uh, Bob Hodge, Catfish Hodge, we flew in because you could get a ticket for like $30 round trip at the time. This was probably right. 1970. And we went to visit Dick Wagner when he was recording the uh, Ursa, Ursa Major album. We hung out with him for an afternoon. And we hang out. We stayed at the Chelsea Hotel, the infamous Chelsea Hotel. And uh, we just hung out in Manhattan for three or four days. Bob flew home and I'd gotten a hold of Rusty. So I went out to visit him uh, on Long Island. They were in the midst of uh, recording the Cactus album. I didn't go to any sessions, but Rusty was a good friend and uh, um, remained so for many, many years. And were they, was it kind of an association through Mitch at all, or had Mitch already kind of departed in your life in the sense of like you weren't really working with him or seeing him? I already, I'd, um, I'd already left Mitch in uh Late 1970, after just a whirlwind year of of, uh, of tours, I think we did uh, at least 290, 300 dates in 1970. Jesus. We went from coast to coast, and we never stopped. And it was a uh, was really like being in a traveling lawn service. It wasn't luxury and planes and uh, and and tour buses. You know, we were just uh, we had an equipment truck, roadies, and a 1967 Cadillac limo that would constantly lose its uh, air conditioning. Oh, no. And uh, we, were, we were, yeah, yeah. So we traveled from uh, Detroit to Minneapolis. We played a huge club called The Depot, which was later became the famous club where Prince made Purple Rain. Right. Uh, um, we were following uh, bad, Mad Dogs and Englishmen. They played the night before us. Jesus. We played the next night all the way across the country till we got to San Francisco. Uh, I'm sorry, we got to Seattle. And uh, then we partied with the band. And uh, Mitch and I had a meeting with uh, Leon Russell. He was talking about uh, um, producing him. And that oh, never wow. happened. But then we swung up into British yeah. Columbia and uh, we did this Canadian tour, worked our way all the way back uh, across Canada down uh, to... Uh, Minnesota and the Upper Peninsula, and we went to the Goose Lake, uh, one of the last big festivals in the country, yeah. the Goose Lake yeah. Festival, which was in the summer of '70. And that's in and Michigan, that was right? amazing. Yeah. That was in Michigan. Yeah, it was just between Ann Arbor and uh, and uh, the Exxon. So they, did you have? Did they have like circuits that you guys just plugged into, and, and it'd be like, okay, we, we, you know, some bookie has taken care of where we're stopping from Detroit to LA and, and you would just play that circuit and then jump on another circuit. Is that how that worked? Yes. Yeah. There were a lot of clubs, uh, you know, there were far more clubs back then than there are today. And, you know, music was a, a driving force in everybody's life. Um, and you mean music that you actually had to get off your couch and go out and experience, I think is really more the point that you're making because today the exactly. music's prevalent, but it's in everyone's ear bone right there with, you know, something, that's strapped to their hip, you know, and it's just not the same. I mean, years ago, there were three TV stations, and if you were bored, you you went out and did stuff, man. You couldn't just bring it to you. So I think that's what sure. we're talking about, right? And a lot of, especially the older blues and what's known today as R&B, which back then was called race music, wasn't accessible to white kids in the suburbs. Uh, so I got my first 
one of my first uh, uh, experience with the blues was sitting in uh, uh, my neighbor's dad's car, turning on the car radio. And if the if the atmospheric conditions were just right, you could get a show called oh, the no. John R. Show out of Memphis. Yeah. And I hear all these artists. That's why I first heard B.B. King. And then, of course, the original Harmony House uh, uh, record store was based in uh, Hazel Park, where I grew up. Right. And uh, Carl Tom was the owner and I would go there and they would special order some of these records for me. Not that they weren't readily available a few miles to the south in downtown Detroit, but that's not a, you know, I didn't even have a driver's license, so that area wasn't accessible to me. Right. Well, that's, I mean, that's a pretty rich, like, beginning to a young man's journey into music. I would like to take... Uh, some time and play some of the music you've been involved with. And I'd like to, at this point, put in the song titled uh, Just About All You Need so we, the audience can hear a little bit of what you do. Oh, this is 1971. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's a fantastic tune, and I'm going to put it on right now. But you don't want to fake it 
is definitely a cool like blues vibe thing. Uh, so it was nice to put on after you were talking about the blues. That where was that recorded, and who was that with? It's recorded with uh, at SRC Studios, and I traded. They were they had broken up. Uh, some of the members had kept the house, and the studio would run as a commercial uh, venture. And Scott had gone solo, and invited me to play on some uh, some demos for him that he's going to take to his move to California. Right, and th- that was my pay- my payment for playing on that was recording my band. I think we recorded a total of three songs. Just about all you need being the best of the bunch. That, sounds that was great. written by yeah, that was written by Larry Hamilton, uh-huh. uh, also known as Boot Hill, who was the original keyboard player with Detroit featuring Mitch Ryder. Uh, nice. Well, actually, the Wheels with horns, uh, and uh, was just a, an incredible musician. I mean, he's playing that that keyboard solo that you heard. There were no synths. There weren't any. We didn't have a road. Right. He had a wordless a reed piano that he would, we used to take two or three of them on the road so we could keep one operating because the reeds would break. Yeah, we I think through a guitar those. amp. <laughs> yeah, a guitar amp, a wordless a reed piano, and a wah pedal. And uh, you know, there's, there's, there's definitely, definitely uh, tinges of Chick Corea and Herbie Hancock, and that solo was just it is blistering. Yeah, it sounds great, man. Yeah. I mean, it's just the it's band was, just, was uh, way ahead of his time. Well, I think too. I mean, I, 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 when I listened to it, I, I thought of you know a young you, and I thought, man, this is just, you know, you don't get to overdubbing isn't as easy as ever as it is today. Everything wasn't as easy to fix as today, and it's just like, no. it's a great groove thing, and and it's just you guys have to put it down. I mean, you can do a bunch of takes, but do you? You didn't record one track at a time. I'm assuming. Oh God, no! That was live in the studio. We did all the yeah. only overdubs are the vocals and the guitar solos. Yeah, uh, everything else was live in the studio, and uh, the drums are recorded with one mic, uh, and then uh, you know one mic um, for just pretty much a room mic. So the ambience of that recording is uh, very old school. But yeah, you know, we you, had. I... Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say that all we had back then, we had the. the uh, Scully eight track tape recorder that uh, came out of Motown studios. Cause they had just bought uh, in 1969, they had just purchased the first Ampex 16 tracks. Right. And we bought that off of them right out of Pittsville, USA for $15,000 at the time. Jesus. And uh, it moved it to Ann Arbor and set it up in a house. We had rented as a studio for SRC. And they had the same, uh, same tape machine at uh, the, the, studio will record it just about all you need but it's a time when you you, you captured a performance you didn't create it in the, in the right. computer right yeah it's really that's an interesting thing too because in today's world obviously you're uh you know with my with my music a lot of it um i send off tracks or stems as they call it now and mm-hmm. uh it's not happening I might not be sitting with the guitar player and saying, Hey, here's some nuance I'd like you to consider when you're tracking this. It's just, I get back something and there's a point of fatigue of like, I'm not going to overcorrect something. It sounds great. If I were there, I might ask for something slightly different. And so you're losing that, that personal interaction sometimes is what I'm rambling about. Um, and so you guys pretty much every time had to do it. Eight tracks is pretty limited. Yeah. Yeah, we have to do what they call bouncing down. So uh, right. uh, the drums and bass would end up on a track to free up other tracks. If we did a lot of overdubs, 
Um, Which too, there's an art form to that as well, because you have to be, you have to learn to know what to bounce down because after you've done that, it's a hassle to go back to square one. Well, you can't once you've, once you've right. bounced the tracks down and, and used some, one of the tracks to record a new part on a different instrument, you exactly. can't go back. So you've you, got to get it you, right. It's yeah. Just, you know. Yeah. Cause you going back means you got to bring the drummer back and the bass player back. Yeah. You got to start over. over basically. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's kind of a whole discipline of its own that I think uh, you guys had to kind of master, especially making it up on your own there in Michigan and Ann Arbor, Michigan, you know, was it cool not having like overlords like walk you through what you were doing? It was, as I said before, it was, everything was wide open. Uh, SRC had had a producer on their first previous two albums and they decided to self-produce the final album, which was called uh, Traveler's Tale. Uh, complete different sound than their first two albums. Right. But, uh, you know, it, it holds up. It holds up. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, all that music is still viable in a way that I don't know that contemporary music is going to withhold. And I don't know if that's part of just the experience of the time. You know, everything was emerging. Uh, guitar sounds were being reinvented. Uh, studio, you know, appropriations and how you do things was being invented um yeah now it's now it's like you can sit with 64 tracks on a computer and make everything perfect is there an art to deciding when it's done opposed to when it's perfect from your standpoint yeah it's a learned art too but i don't know everything today is so computerized and even if it's a real drummer he's playing to a click track and it's the music has lost the human element yeah. that it used to have and it's just a sign of the times and uh, uh uh you know it was as i said music was much more a driving force in society back in the 60s and 70s i would believe that yeah but by, by the mid-70s it, 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 you know the rules were laid down and uh, it became very very difficult if you really didn't have your cards on the table and weren't established uh, difficult to break in yeah well because they kind of i'm sure the corporate bean counters figured out you know, how to sample to people and how to go, okay, this is working, this isn't working. Um, and it, it started to become money driven. Cause I know with radio, by the time I got to WLLZ as a young dude in the early eighties, it was all being programmed by the same company that sure. was programming uh, WRIF. They were all being programmed sure. by the same company. And you, you played what they told you to. Exactly. You know who came in though when I was on uh, when I was in tenure there at uh, WLLZ was Jerry Lubin. You probably remember oh, yeah. him from ABX days. A dear, dear friend of mine up until the day he died, which is just a oh, few okay. months ago. He died. Oh, I didn't know that. COVID. Yes, he passed away of COVID in California. It was very sad. He was eighty years old, but just uh, uh, one of the best. One of the best. He was. He was one of the best yeah. DJs. It was interesting to see him um, because he had to be. You know, he was a little bit past his his tenure of being, you know, freeform radio guy. And they brought him in because of his cachet. And it was interesting to watch this 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 older guy I say older. He wasn't really that old at the time, kind of become deal with corporate radio when you could see he didn't like any of it. I, in fact, I don't think he stayed very long because he was like, I don't no. like this. This is not radio. But, yeah. Good human being. I miss Yeah. Him. Yeah. Was was ABX a bigger driving force at some point in Detroit radio because of their love for freeform radio than other stations, do you think? 
Yeah, yeah, they 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 ruled for a number of years, and you know they were a, a whole source of uh, of of new music for a whole generation, my generation. And they also yeah. played the local bands. They played Nugent before he was famous. They played SRC. They played all the local bands, the MC5, uh, uh, Iggy and the Stooges. Yeah. Because uh, you know, many of those bands, the MC5 and Iggy in particular, really, they had already burned out in the early 70s. And you know, it was really tough going. And it wasn't until the mid to late 70s when some uh, rock and roll journalists that really weren't even there uh, sort of mystified and, uh, and turned them into heroes. Yeah. I think too. Not that like, they weren't great, not that they weren't unique and great, but uh, um, you know, they, they weren't, uh, they weren't catching on fire and selling like hotcakes. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, I think I saw Iggy once say in a old school, like video that of the time of it, he was playing something with Bowie and they were interviewing him and, he talked about how he basically single-handedly killed the summer of love, you know, because, <laughs> because of the style of music that they were doing or the, the lack of style, I guess, is the way he might look at it. And uh, what an interesting character he was for sure. What performance uh, art off stage. He is just one of the most intelligent, so well-spoken people that, uh, that yeah. I've met in that era. I haven't talked to him in many, many years, but I'm sure he's still the same. Well, I do remember personally hearing uh, I Want to Be Your Dog for the first time on a Sunday night, you know, kind of free form thing, I think not on ABX at that point. But uh, and I thought, wow, this is an interesting thing here. This is interesting rock and roll because it was just so streamlined and so rugged that I'm like, I, I don't at first I was like, I don't know if I like this. And then pretty soon on, I was digging it. So and I don't know if it had to do remember what band it was? Uh, no, that was Iggy. I mean, that's one oh, of the first Iggy. times I heard Iggy. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it was a, it was kind of an amazing experience because it's, it, it was such a, you know, stripped down raw vibe that I wasn't used to. And I, I, I found it shocking at first, but again, it took a couple seconds and I was digging it. It was really performance art far more than, than um, you know, the, the musicality of it. Uh, yeah. It just, it was performance art. He was so outrageous live. Uh, really something to see back in the day. Probably still. Yeah. Oh, I would imagine. Hey, so you ended up with another hero of mine, kind of, was uh, Cub Coda. Mm -hmm. you, you partnered with him on, on quite a bit of stuff in some years when I was back in Detroit. I remember seeing you guys at a bar where it was probably, I, I talk about that sometimes as being the best concert I ever attended. Because wow. between what you were doing and, and Cub, which, you know, I was a little naive in a way. I, I didn't know he was such a hellacious guitar player. Yeah, Cub was, Cub was a very, very unique, real musicologist, yeah. uh, uh, walking encyclopedia of, of uh, facts about the early rock and roll records and the artists. Uh, um, quite a guy. Yeah, you guys, you guys rocked that small little house. I remember being there with Jody and just just excited as hell to see this because I, I I think you're a exceedingly gifted uh, blues rock guy, and then to see both you guys play with his band in such an intimate uh, setting was was fantastic. Did you do any recording with Cub? No, unfortunately, no. Uh, what I did was after he passed away, he had a forty year collection of. Uh, of songs that he had written, many most unreleased, and the t the tapes were like molding away in the studio. And uh, yeah. I took off all of those tapes. It took me the best part of a year, and I digitized them all. 
And I found oh, some real gems. And then, uh, uh, you know, when Cub passed away in 2000, uh, um, there was very, very little uh, local um, clamor about it. I mean, he was just off everybody's radar. It's like he didn't exist. Yeah. And, uh, and none of the none of the awards, the Detroit awards, music awards, wouldn't uh, wouldn't do anything to honor him. And it was really frustrating. So when I got the opportunity, and this was by 2012, I took one of uh, a couple of his favorites that nobody had ever heard, and I recorded them. One is finished, and I believe I sent that to you. It was called "Is It Just the Night," and that was done. It was going to be a tribute to Cub. Unfortunately, uh, it never never saw fruition. But uh, there's some real Detroit notables on that record. Um, uh, most notably, uh, Al Jacquet from Savage Grace is doing all of the vocals on that, the harmonies and backgrounds and everything, because that nice. was done without a budget. It was done without a, any budget at all. And this Drew Abbott from the Silver Bullet Band is playing one of the outro solos before I come in with mine. Oh, that's cool. So it was big fun, big fun. I played... Uh, Guitar, acoustic guitar, baritone guitar, and mandolin, as well as the outro solo on that one, and, and did the production and arrangement. So nice, interesting well, tune. Do, well, let's let's put it on right now. Sure.
So that's that is a, a fantastic song. So again, who was playing on that, and how did that happen? Well, it came about from the Pastoria Brothers. I had recorded a project with Dick Wagner there in 2011. Uh, we did a song called Motor City Music, and then we gave it away to this uh, this uh, a uh, Franciscan monk in Detroit that ministered to the homeless, and he had lost. Uh, these kitchen privileges at the church because the roof had caved in and the roof was leaking into the kitchen. So yeah. uh, Harmony Park Studios was on the third floor and there was a small bar and restaurant on the first floor and they let him move in and uh, uh, make coffee and some food stuff, sandwiches and things that he would drive around in a bicycle and uh, uh, distribute among the homeless in Detroit. And uh, we met him, and uh, Dick wrote Motor City Music and gave it to him. And I don't have the audio on Motor City Music. All I have is a DVD uh, that was released. But you can find it on YouTube. Cool. Uh, look up Motor City Music by Dick Wagner, and I think you'll probably see the documentary video of, uh, of Brother Al and uh, how he ministered to the, uh, to the poor and homeless in Detroit. Yeah, and I Dick remember Brother Al. Yeah. yeah. Dick gave it to him uh, free of charge. And it's a great song. And, uh, that was Johnny B. Badanjic on drums. We had uh, Prakash John uh, from the original Alice Cooper, Welcome to My Nightmare Touring Band, and, and the album on bass. Um, um, me and Dick on guitar, as well as Dennis Burr on guitar, another noted Detroit guitar player, notable, I should say. And trying to remember who played bass and keyboards and i can't remember it's called gosh played bass edit that out yeah you got it man but i mean that is that is that is such a um to me at least being a a a kid who was raised in detroit on detroit radio and and loving rock and roll um that's just a warehouse of notables man that's a really cool thing now dick wagner and you ended up uh, with a with a, a very strong relationship towards the end of his life. Of course, you've had a relationship with him throughout your life. Could you talk a little about uh, Dick Wagner and 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 
how playing out with him um, was such a joy for you? Well, Dick was, you know, Dick actually had written so many hit songs and it was such an influential guitar player. Steve Lukather used to call him the master. Steve Lukather from Toto. Uh, yeah. you know, he ruled, he played on so many sessions that he's uncredited for, such as The Train Kept Rolling by Aerosmith. That's him and Steve right. Hunter. Uh, 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 a lot of the early Kiss stuff um, wrote hit songs for Air Supply. Wrote, uh, of course, most famously wrote "Only Women Bleed" and "Just As I Am." Um, "Just As I Am" was uh, uh, Air Supply, but uh, "Only Women Bleed" was Cooper. Yeah. Well, it was Alice Cooper, yeah, and he yeah. wrote many of Cooper's uh, some of Cooper's biggest hits. He co-wrote them with Alice. You know, he just had this stellar career, uh, and then he went solo, and he was, you know, the go-to session guy uh, on many, many, many recordings. But his career had kind of uh, fallen a bit, and when he moved back from Nashville in 1995, he moved back to Saginaw and started his own record label, and that's where I kind of uh, renewed my friendship with him. I hadn't seen him in many years, and we started playing together in his local band. So that went on until the early 2000s, and uh, unfortunately, he he decided to move to Arizona and you know explore some opportunities he had out there, and was producing an album in the studio, and uh, had a near fatal heart attack. Oh boy! And uh, almost died. He wasn't expected to live. Uh, this was in 2007, and he miraculously pulled through. So uh, I had stayed in contact with him, and I was talking to him in the hospital, and I made him a promise that uh, we'd play together sometime. And uh, that didn't happen until 2011, when he was finally yeah. healthy enough. But I didn't know at the time was that the, the heart attack and stroke had stroke, it caused paralysis in his left hand. And right. he could barely, barely play guitar. And he practiced and struggled for five years till he could, you know, at least once again, uh, you know, make a good showing of, of his guitar work. And then right. he came back in 2011, and the rest we toured every summer for uh, uh, four years. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's. I I know towards the end too, you were spending a lot of time, uh, you know, getting out there with him, and um, experiencing that whole thing. Was was it well received? Is the is is there a like drop off? I mean, I'm sure there is a drop off of people who are plugged into 60s 70s rock so your contemporaries obviously you know at some point start dropping off the planet did young people come out in force and understand who dick wagner was or is it just one of those some but there was quite a bit quite a bit of uh you know randy ballroom fans you know so we we were pretty much constrained to you know playing in the midwest cleveland uh, all over michigan some summer festivals and mainly some small clubs that, that specialized in concerts like uh, Callahan's, which has since closed. That was a, the main concert venue for small rooms in Detroit. Um, so there was, you know, just definitely a lack of places to play. It was difficult to book. Yeah. But when we did, but, uh, the people really enjoyed it. And many, many people came out. And uh, yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting to me because back in the day when you were a young lad, if some older blues guy was playing in an area that you could get to, I, I'm sure that you probably got there and kind of showed up with reverence of like, here's, here's a guy I'm going to listen to, enjoy and learn some things from. Oh, I, yes. I guess that's, I guess I was kind of making that jump to the contemporary where Dick Wagner would be this guy who 
as you said, you know, he wrote hard rock stuff to soft ballad stuff. You would think that the young musicians would be like, who this cat is Dick Wagner. I'm going to go and check him out. I did, but you didn't experience a lot of that, I think, is what I got. Not a lot. There were some, you know, there were several generations of families that would come and see us, but, you know, for most, the, the audience was fairly geriatric, you know, so there was, a, right. they were well behaved. Let me put it that way. Yeah. It's interesting because sometimes, yeah. too, I talk to a lot of, of rock people of varied types of rock music as well as ages and things of that and sometimes we'll get on the discussion of you know is rock dead um what are your thoughts on on that i know you don't want to announce it (laughs) you don't want to be the guy who john let me announce it officially it has died that's not really what i mean paul simon said every generation sends another hero to pop charts you know, so, okay. uh, so, you know, I can't fault that, but I do bemoan the fact that the, the you know, the music is just so vapid and vacant and, uh, yeah. uh, meaningless. I mean, there's no deeper meaning. There's no message. Um, you know, I mean, you see Bruno Mars, he's out touring and he's playing that, that big hit and he's, you know, definitely a tribute to old school, right. uh, but he's got a horn section only they're not playing. Yeah. It's pre-recorded and they're, they're, they're pantomime. Yeah, they're doing the show. Right. Yeah, I think I agree because I think it, it just, <clears throat> a lot of it just seems like unplugged humanness um, where, you know, I, I get it. At some points, it's it's like, I like industrial music from time to time. It's just savagely programmed. And, mm-hmm. and but with, with someone who's playing guitars, because the guitar lends itself to such nuance, um, I would think that, that you would want to stay away from a lot of auto tune and, and rigid uh, percussives, unless it's a driving tune, you know? So I think I know what you're talking about. Um, I guess I was talking more, I think to where rap overtook uh, rock as far as popularity, like 10 years ago. And yeah, probably more than that. I think we're into almost 40 years of hip hop and that really hasn't helped yeah. the situation. And then we still yeah. got great artists like the Foo Fighters a great right. rock band, or, or one of my two of my new favorites, uh, Larkin and Poe and uh, Brandy Carlisle. Uh, yeah. Larkin and Poe, of course, a female duo. They, they play tremendously and they write great songs. Yeah. And then Brandy, she's like a modern Joni Mitchell. She's, uh, she's really something. Yeah, I think, I think that it's more like, um, you know, how people will do, like where I worked at the Dresden, they do. Um, you know, jazz standards. And that is a language all its own at this point. I think rock and roll is kind of at that place where it's, it's, it's the same where it's language onto itself that students of it will learn and play, but I don't know that it'll ever have that, that force of nature that you talked about where music was so important back in the late sixties, early seventies. And today it, it, it doesn't have that sense of urgency or necessity. Well, it came, you know, it arose, at its highest high point, it arose as part of the societal change. You know, the, the yeah. Nixon, the war in Vietnam, uh, the ecology movement, uh, uh, you know, yeah, racial it equality. Yeah, purpose, right, right. Yes, it seemed to give like a purpose. A purpose. And, and it, it gave a reason for individualistic people to come together and be somewhat collective, I think, in in that in events and, and, and with purpose. Um, and I guess now in today's world, feel, things feel so sterile and removed and, and 
packaged in its proper place type of thing. Where it's completely say, corporate controlled. Yeah. yeah. Completely corporate controlled. And you know, they, they are, they, it's sold like a, like a, a, a profitable commodity, yeah. not an art. And, you know, I mean, a Motown would never happen again because no major label, no huge conglomerate would allow a startup like that to erode their market share. They'd buy them up in, a, in, a, in yeah. an instant. And, yeah, that's uh, you true. know, then they'd, they'd start cutting costs by cutting quality. And it's interesting. I've been lately I've been musing with the idea of like uh, the analogy or the metaphor could be the idea of our, our food. Right. It's so GMO laced at this point, And there's a fight going on between organic purposes versus the 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 chemical purposes well of course to your to what you're saying is how i'm applying it the corporations it's easier to do the chemical and just manufacture you know kind of empty carbs for us you know what i mean opposed to produce and it, yeah, it kind of feels of the same yeah it feels the same in so much many ways to me like our art well, you know I, I'm, I'm sorry go ahead I'd be moaning the state of the music industry. Uh, you know, it's impossible to make money off of recordings anymore. Everybody's trying to play live. And then for over, for more than a year now, the live industry has just disappeared. Right. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm traveling to Detroit uh, on Thursday. And then this weekend, I'm playing the first, uh, my first gig in well over a year. Yeah. Which kill I, I I can only imagine kills you because like that's what you do that's your thing that's that's I'm sure that's your spiritual connected connection to the world. Sure, but the do downtime, it. you know, there's there's no amount of practice that can take the place of actually going out and playing and go inter, yeah. interplay with other musicians. Uh, you just, you can't get that uh, anywhere else. Right. It used to be you could Which, get it in the studio, but now you're just doing parts. I mean, I I do I still record for certain producers here in Nashville, but they email me tracks right. and I put my guitar part on in my, in my spare bedroom where I've got my computer set up and I email it back. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's I mean, there's, there's no, uh, no interplay, no, no uh, exchange of ideas with the other well, musicians. That's, and that's the, uh, that's what I was going to ask about earlier was when you played so many gigs, uh, you know, on the circuit tour, how that made you a better player. And I guess that's what the answer is, is you're talking about learning to play. You've learned the techniques, but now you learn to listen when you play with other people. Is that what you're talking about? That's, that's the most important thing is to learn to listen. And, you know, when you go out and you play enough and you get really tight with the other musicians and the whole, as a group, you develop what I call this concert punch where, you know, it's tighter and it's more concise and, uh, more moving than um, than if you were just a bunch of guys jamming at an open mic night. <laughs> right. Well, I used to, when I played the Dresden, there was a sax player that would come in that everyone fawned over. But to me, he wasn't, he was just playing advanced scales. He wasn't even melding in with what Marty and Elaine were doing as the two, the jazz duo there. And so mm-hmm. he, he won no points with me, yet the audience was just like, oh my God, look at this thing that he's doing. And and I, so I would understand what you're talking about in that way, that, that it was detrimental to what Marty and Elaine were doing because this guy wasn't listening and he wasn't interacting within the music that was being created. Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's the thing that attracts me to music. It's, you know, everything, all the best things in, the, in life, in my opinion, are collaborations. And right. you collaborate very, very closely with musicians, you know, it, at, its, at its highest form. 
in its highest form. Yeah, no, I think that you're right. And, and I, I, that's why I'm kind of uh, harping or staying at this position because the art of listening is what I kind of learned when I would sing with Marty and Elaine because they're jazz players and they're going to float time. They're going to float different things upon it because they're, they're attempting to experience something that's being created with spontaneity and, and they're indulging on that, right? And it, right. I didn't really understand it because I was more like a rock guy of like going, hey, the drummer sets the beat. And we all follow that. And we all know what to do. And, and, and that's not as expressive, I think, as what you're talking about. No, it's the interplay that's, uh, that makes it. Yeah. Uh, you know, even, even going out and you know, doing uh, some of these writer's hits, uh, there would be subtle changes that we would make. Uh, mistakes would turn into, you know, good mistakes would turn into uh, an improvement in the arrangement. And, you know, we could all adapt to it because we were listening. If we were just playing those parts, right. I would not be interpreting it, you know. So interpretation and listening is a, a real, real important aspect of playing in the studio or live. Yeah. It is one of the hardest to learn. I think so. And that's what I miss about, that's what I was saying, too, about, like, sending off stems is cool and you can create music via the Internet. However, I do miss the nuance that you get to do. And, and someone says, hey, John, yeah. your vocals sound fine, but, you know, consider this or try that. You know, you don't get notes back like that when you're sending stems. You get notes back like, hey, dude, you're way off base. Do it this way. Opposed to the nuance of it. You know what I mean? It's just a strange, strange thing. And it's a lost thing. And so I appreciate your insight on that. The... Uh, the other thing I, is with with guys like Dick and in all of your experience with a guy playing with guys like Cub, they learned it all the same way as well, right? They're just they're just kind of moving through stuff and playing with other people and picking up their style out of that. I assume none of us studied music, that's for sure. You know, it was right. all uh, uh, just growing up and uh, you know being a part of uh, the, the music of the time, right? Um, you know, I, I, uh, as I said, you know, blues and some of these other forms were very secret knowledge. You didn't hear it on the, on the uh, radio, or if you did, um, it would have to, you'd have to search for stations. You know, I heard BB King uh, live at the Regal and that changed my life. And then I right. uh, really got into the blues. That was his famous live album from the Regal theater in Chicago. I think it was recorded in 1959. And when I discovered that, uh, you know, it was never the same. Right. And then uh, I was fortunate enough to see the original Paul Butterfield Blues Band at this small club in Detroit, even though I was only 15 or 16 at the time, didn't yet have a driver's license. This is one of the older guys in my band did. And they would give uh, uh, what I called kitty matinees. They would uh, open up in the afternoon and do a set, you know, sell tickets. Nice. And, uh, uh, I was fortunate enough that Mike Bloomfield actually gave me my first slide lesson on guitar because he had this little piece of metal around his finger, and I'd never seen it before, bottleneck style. Right. And I uh, didn't know what it was, and I went up and asked him after their set. And he uh, grabbed his guitar, um, grabbed his slide, and showed me how it was done, gave me his guitar, put it on my finger, let me play a little bit. And I said, well, where'd you get these? And he goes, bicycle handlebars. Nice. So the very next day, my the, the left handlebar on my bicycle was about an inch and a half shorter. That's funny. <laughs> you didn't keep the rubber part on no no <laughs> that's great man hey so of that time of that period there was a, a place in detroit called the grandy ballroom 
I would love to have you just talk about some of your experiences there, either as a, a person going to see shows or a person playing there, either which way I would be, I would be delighted to, to hear you talk about that. Well, it's a legendary place. It is not as well known outside of Detroit as it should be. Uh, there is a documentary movie made about it called Louder Than Love, which I'm interviewed for. And you can see that there, but it's Ted Nugent, Alice Cooper, uh, uh, all uh, the Wayne Kramer, you know, the, the, the yeah. surviving members of the MC5. Uh, it's a really interesting movie. And uh, our Dick Wagner's song, Motor City Music, is also the theme song for that movie. We gave nice. it to our Brother Al to uh, uh, use for charity, but we also gave it to the producer and director of Louder Than Love, Tony D'Annunzio, and he uses it in the movie. So uh, you can find that. It's on the web. Just uh, Google Louder Than Love, and it'll pop up. Right. But the it's... Granny was just this, this magical place. If you remember, you know, underground music and uh uh, 66, 67, we were starting to hear that. We were hearing the Jefferson Airplane and all this great music. And the uh, first time I heard Sgt. Peppers was on ABX. Nice. So uh, uh, then there's all these these bands are there every week, all the British Invasion bands. I saw Yardbirds there. I nice. saw Jeff Beck group there. I saw Jeff Rotol there. I saw The Who there the first time they performed Tommy Live. Yeah. Uh, who was Who were regulars there because their old road manager was the manager at the Grandy. And uh, the story is, is that they were going to break up. They were so despondent over their tours in America. Uh, they were going to break up until they played the, the Grandy. It was their last date on the tour, and it was a full house, and people were screaming. Yeah. And that encouraged them to uh, to continue on. And so they came back, and as a tribute to the Grandy, they performed the first live performance of Tommy in the world. It was done in the Grandy Ballroom. That's cool, man. What would it take? I saw Joe cost Cocker there. Oh, five bucks. Jesus. Five That's... bucks. And you'd see, uh, I saw Joe Cocker and Jeff Rotella in the same bill. Uh, nice. Was it two bands or three on a bill? Usually two or three. The MC5 was a, a regular. They were pretty much the house band. So I saw them a lot. Yeah. Uh, Third Power with, with Drew Abbott, who went on to play with the Silver Bullet Band, was right. a very, very popular band back in the day. They've got an album out. So, uh, that was reissued recently, their original album. And, uh, of course, Savage Grace, they were on Warner yeah. Brothers, and that's Alice Okay, an incredible vocalist. Um, and on and on and on. It was just a, a, a real social meeting place. And a, a, a Yeah, that's... A shared that's... communication, I guess, of the music we loved. You know, I saw Jeff Beck there with Rod Stewart, the original Jeff Beck group. On their yeah. first tour with Ronnie Wood playing bass, uh, it was literally one of the greatest concerts I've ever seen. Hendrix yeah, never that place played was there, legendary. Right? Well, he he did yeah. play Detroit, I assume, but but that place he played. Was uh, yeah, he played the fifth fifth dimension in uh, Detroit. Then he played Masonic Temple, and then in '68 he played Kobo, and I saw him at Kobo Hall in '68. Damn, that must have been a great concert. Yeah, well. Technologically, we were, it was the old days. They were still, you know, steam engines. Yeah. They were, you know, so big PAs as we know them today didn't exist. So the sound reinforcement wasn't exactly uh, I gotcha. uh, ideal. Yeah. Well, it's funny. It's like I worked at the East Town Theater as, a, as an actor. Um, mm -hmm. We would do plays there. Uh, they would bust in a bunch of kids and we would do these big 
children play things. I did uh, uh, the Frederick, Frederick Douglass story, you know, these big kind of children's show musicals. And I was always just blown away by that space because it was antique at that point and it was big and beautiful. But up on the third level, because I guess they had rock concerts there for some years as well. On the third level, there, there were still paintings of like wizards and very 60, you know, what, it, what was it, Peter Max style paintings on, yeah. on the, from, from those days. Was the East Town a contender? At, I mean, was it, was it a, a place that people played as well that you remember? For a while, it usurped the Grandy. I guess for some reason, they couldn't, the Grandy stopped holding concerts. And Russ Gibb, the promoter, moved over to another theater in the same area. Uh, it was actually a movie theater uh, called uh, Riviera, and it became the Grandy right. Riviera for a short while. But the East Town game, I did play there. I saw many, many acts there. In fact, Alice Cooper never actually played at the Grandy, but I saw him many times at the East Town. Gotcha. And uh, then there, there, were, there were a couple other ballrooms that opened up that uh, uh, a lot of other groups played at, like Jay Giles and stuff, well into the 70s. So the original it, place was the Grandy, 67. It opened, maybe 66. It opened for the first time. Yeah, was the was you know the East Town since you played it, you know how it had the uh, the theater that rakes the seating rakes upward pretty quickly because it was actually I think a, a film theater to start with. Was that exactly, the way the yeah. East was that the East Town was it the same type of thing or was it more open like a ballroom? The East Town was the theater that was it was the you know seating. The Grandy, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, the Grandy, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. Grandy was a, it was a deco ballroom that opened up in the 20s or 30s, back in the big band era, and uh, 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 yeah, it was originally a dance place, you know, dance halls on the second floor of this uh, building, a huge block, block long, um, and uh, My God, very ornate, that had dome to, ceiling. That had to be a really cool experience for some someone who just burnt a joint or two and went in to watch these bands to be in a mass of people and, and hear that vibe. It had to be an amazing experience. It was. That's cool, man. Well, I want to also get on another tune here. So this time I think I'd love to play uh, raggedy and dirty. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's a song I called up with Luther Allison uh, way back in the old days. That is uh, uh, members of the funk brothers in the backing band, Bob Babbitt yeah. on bass. Excuse me for not calling the name of the drummer right now. And, of course, me and uh, Luther on guitars. Very sparse. And uh, 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 Greg Holman's son actually recorded that song a few years ago on his, uh, oh, wow. his first solo album. Yeah. It's a fun tune, man. It's, it's, and it's got, it's got cool vibe going for it, too. So I'm going to put that on right now, and then we'll be back to talk a little more. Sixteen inches and double 
I really, when you sent over um, some samples of your work, that was one of the first ones my ear went, but that's just a cool song there. Um, well, it was done, you know, done on the original, the, the original Hitsville USA, on the yeah. original uh, uh, um, tape machines that they used there. So, uh, yeah, it's quite uh, quite authentic sounding. And uh, Luther was uh, just an amazing artist, amazing guitar player, very, very uh, knowledgeable about the blues. It taught me a lot. And and you say was it the Funk Brothers? Is that what you said? Bob Babbitt on bass, yes, one of the original Funk Brothers, bass player. And I, I, I yeah, it was yeah, it was Motown. They, when they called musicians, they called it the Funk Brothers. But uh, nice the uh, guitar, the producer, Vic Perino, um, called me in to come in because he knew that I was a good blues player, and. Uh, uh, the rest is history. Uh, we was on that album. There's another album called Lizard's Blues that I'm on a few cuts. So it was a, a very, very uh, uh, great experience for me. And I stayed in touch with Luther for many, many years until he passed away, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, I guess I, I, I'm going to try to give you a chance to put this in retrospect. I would have to ask, do you, do you feel all said and done? I mean, that picking up a guitar and every path that it brought you on 
was worth it because I don't imagine your your bank account necessarily reflects uh, a joyous run, whereas what you actually did has a value. What what do you think at the place that you're at now, like looking back at it all, what what were the great worth items that you pulled from from your experiences? I guess is what I'm asking. Oh, a lot of of international travel, you know, many many trips to Europe, all over North America. You know, pretty much everywhere. And that was uh, that's an education in itself. Um, one of my uncles uh, uh, once commented that the only way he got to see the world was in World War II. He was kind of jealous of me uh, going to Germany twice a year to tour with Mitch, or or going here, going to England. Um, so uh, that the travel was great, and the people I met. Uh, um, that's the main thing I get out of it. In my worst moments, I berate myself for not going to law school. Right. But, uh, you know, also, you know, just like acting in, in Hollywood, it's a young man's, young person's game. And yeah. uh, uh, there's not a lot of opportunities for uh, uh, 70 year old sidemen here in Nashville or anywhere else. So I'm just, uh, just kind of making it up as I go along. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it is one of those things, right? I, I can relate to what you just said in the sense of like, you start down a path because it gives you a joy or a purpose, even if you want to make it simpler than that. Right. And, and you gain, I mean, you do end up no matter what, with what your life gives you. And, and there is, there's always worth, but there's always the pain. Well, not always. I mean, with, with a lot of people, there's, there's the downside to it. Um, you still love playing, I assume. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's few and far between, particularly here in Nashville. I mean, the, the music industry, preys on youth it exploits youth and it always has been that way and it always will be so uh, uh you know there's guys here in nashville that uh, that play a lot but they're playing for tips first of all the clubs here don't pay right the, you know if you go down to broadway or so the the lower broadway streets uh the tourist area those musicians aren't getting paid they're running from club to club playing a set of uh, you know new country music and uh, um they're completely dependent on tips from the audience even though yeah. some of those clubs are raking in money hands over fists. So I don't even try and do that. Uh, so the opportunity well, here. Of, yeah. It's kind of like uh, to, to directly relate it. It's kind of like Spotify or music outlets online where you get kind of pennies to the dollar for your effort as well. So I guess it's uniform throughout the industry itself. What, what's happening. It's, it's, it's exploitive and it's killing, it's killing you originality and creativity of music. Uh, it's got to change. It's got to change. Unfortunately, big tech is so powerful and uh, puts so much money into politicians' pockets that it's going to be very difficult. Yeah, they do. They certainly yeah. do, man. Like everything well, else, yes. Well, it's funny. When I was at WLLZ, I saw, I guess, what really became the standard. I saw corporations, like Doubleday Books was who bought the station Then when I worked for them. And uh, there was a young fellow who was like Abner Doubleday's, you know, removed nephew 14 times down the gene pool. I'm not sure exactly how it worked, but he was he was part of the family and he was my age at the time. And he got the run of the house. And his whole plan was to just do non-commercial radio for four years, turn around and triple the sales value of the radio station they bought. And they successfully, I don't think they did it in four years, but they did successfully bought it for 2 million and they sold it for like 28 million. I'm not sure the numbers and I don't want to border down a path of lawsuit, but my point is, is they, 
they took a corporate point of view on something that that I was raised thinking it was something different. And, and quite frankly, that's why I got out of radio at the time. I was, I, I mm-hmm. would have, have to do playlists and they told me to take calls and tell anyone who called that we were going to get their songs on, even though I knew they weren't going on and I didn't dig that. Yeah. Not a whole lot of money in being a DJ, unless you're uh, Ibis or, you know, some of the biggies. But yeah. I think it's the same with any type of art, unless you do kind of a, a rise up through the, the froth and end up at top. I don't know that there is a lot of money involved. Uh, not anymore. You know, yeah. not anymore. There's a time when you could get a, you know, a, a minor album cut on a hit album, you'd be set for life. Yeah. But that, those days are long gone. Now the, the money is in live performance and that's pretty much non-existent. Yeah. Right now for sure. We'll see how it comes back. It's kind of it's, it's kind of tough to play live in an oxygen mask. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, Ray, man, it's been singing to your elbow. Yeah, it's a little. It gives a kind of a whole weird reverb thing. You know, it's a very tight reverb, but it's it's there. Yeah. Depending on the yeah, to your point, the, the size of the bubble. Hey, it's been great talking to you, man. Uh, is there any interest in you promoting yourself at all? Do you have a website or any contact information? Not really. No, I'm on Facebook. You know, that's the best place to reach me, I guess. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, I am uh, planning to uh, uh, do a tour with Mitch Ryder later this year. Nice. We're going to do a Detroit featuring Mitch Ryder reunion uh, with as many original members as I can muster. Uh, Steve Hunter, of course, is retired to Spain, so he won't be with us. But um, uh, Johnny B is uh, definitely coming along as far as I know at this point. And uh, some others. It's going to be an all Detroit band. I'm actually going to return to Detroit for the duration and, uh, uh, you know, use all Detroit musicians. And nice, so it'll man. be, you know, it'll be, and uh, we'll be performing the Detroit featuring Mitch Ryder album and some of his other hits too. So people can look so for that's that. That's the plan now. <laughs> that's fantastic. And you don't, you don't know the dates yet because you don't know how venues are opening and all that. So people are just going to have to figure that out. Right. It'll be later in the year, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe it'll be next spring. Uh, but it, it's uh, something I've been working on for a couple of years. Mitch is all down for it. His management is down with it. So uh, we're going to try and put it together and see. Uh, it all depends on who's wanting to buy the act at this point. So yeah, we're going to put well, it together fan. and uh, and see see what comes. That's fantastic, man. Well, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me. Sure, great talking with you. Hey there, this is John. I want to thank everyone for listening to the Mobile Radio Carnival at the CEF.world. I also want to say, hey, thanks, Ray, for being on the show. 